This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. I'd like to introduce our speaker, preacher. It'll be Steve Notley from New York. Steve is a professor of New Testament at uh, Nyack College in Manhattan. Steve's an old friend as well. And uh, I first met Steve, I believe, in 1983 or 1984 when he came uh, to the Hebrew University to study with Professor David Flusser. Steve was a member of this congregation together with his wife, Sonia, and um, we've been friends uh, ever since. Steve left uh, a number of lasting legacies uh, here for us at Christchurch, and perhaps one of his most important is that he started uh, the Shorish Study Tour Ministry. Christchurch has a ministry of uh, helping Christians come to a better understanding uh, of our Jewish roots, the Jewish context of the gospel, not so that we can become Jewish wannabes, but really so that we can uh, deepen our discipleship and our appreciation of uh, Jesus the Lord. And uh, the Shorsh program has been going for well over 30 years, and today it's headed up by Scott Morgan. Let's pray for Steve. So Father in heaven, thank you uh, for your servant. Thank you for all that you've taught him. Thank you for the experiences that you've given him. And Father, thank you that uh, he's been uh, indeed uh, a great inspiration to uh, many, many of his students uh, at Nyack and uh, far beyond. We pray that uh, you will bless him as he speaks. But Lord, we also pray that you'll bless us. We ask that you'll bring us insight into your word. And as we asked earlier, Father, we pray that you'll challenge us and help us come to a better understanding of who your son Jesus is and what his mission uh, entails for us in this day. Help us, we pray, and send your Holy Spirit uh, to illuminate our hearts. Uh, in the name of Jesus, we ask. Amen. Good morning. It's always a privilege to speak here, to come home to Christ Church, and to be here and fellowship and worship the congregation. First thing is apologies. Uh, I've been leading my students for 12 days through the country uh, and guiding, and so I, I don't have much of a voice, so you'll tolerate it. It's not so good even when it's good, but it's, uh, today it's even weaker. So, um, um, <clears throat> but I hope to be able to communicate the richness of this passage. I'll, I'll be honest, this is one of my favorite passages in the gospel. It's extraordinary. We don't have time to really plumb the full depths of it, but I hope to give you a taste this morning of what is going on in Nazareth, what Jesus is saying in his uh, reading and his proclamation there in the synagogue of Nazareth, and hopefully to whet your appetite to leave this place and to continue studying. A um, little bit of background. This is actually first, this is Jesus's first public declaration, his first public uh, statement uh, in response to John's ministry, John the Baptist. And uh, we could do a whole nother 
uh, discussion about what John expected of the Redeemer. Uh, but he, it's sort of interesting, I, I've come, over the years, I've come to think that John expected uh, the redemption to come in the Jubilee year. And there were certain aspects about that that uh, he was looking for. Uh, as we well know, we get to the, the end of John's life, he had doubts, he had some questions. And I think because Jesus did not uh, follow exactly what John uh, anticipated, and so there was a, a bit of tension there. But in this opening passage, uh, we can hear Jesus uh, using a passage of scripture uh, that maybe we in the church don't realize it, but it actually very much corresponds uh, to this expectation of uh, a jubilee year, a year of the Lord's favor. So it's, I think it's rather remarkable that Jesus sort of opens his preaching ministry, um, the reading of this text. What I'd like to do today is to talk a little bit about the, some of the elements of the story you may not pick up on. Uh, these are important to understand what Jesus is saying. Uh, I tell my students, uh, you need to know what Jesus said in order to understand what Jesus meant. And sometimes we miss that because we're coming from the outside. Uh, most of us don't fellowship in a synagogue. We're not familiar with the, the reading of the scriptures here. And there's some remarkable elements in this story that frame Jesus' message. Um, we hear, and picking up in verse 16, if you've got your church Bibles, uh, I'm gonna, you're going to have to read, you're going to have to study today. Uh, you're going to have to actually do some work. Um, and came to Nazareth, uh, um, where he had been brought up, and went to the synagogue as his custom was on the Sabbath day. Now, the first thing that needs to be noticed is that Jesus came to synagogue regularly. I always remind my students that Jesus never went to church, but he went to, went to synagogue regularly. And of course, that's tongue-in-cheek because there weren't churches in the first century, but it tells something of the setting that Jesus felt comfortable in. He felt comfortable in the synagogue setting. And uh, this story is incredibly informative and precise about what went on in the synagogue in, in the second temple period in the first century. It says that Jesus came, he stood, stood up to read. The synagogue was a place of reading, a place of study. We have not one mention of prayer in the synagogue in the Second Temple period, neither in the New Testament or in Jewish literature. Uh, most of us think of the synagogue as the place of the Jewish community and having communal prayers, but that is a post-70, post-destruction Jerusalem uh, development. And it seems that the synagogue was a focal point of the reading of the scriptures, the study of the scriptures. Um, the simple, one of the simple reasons was that in the first century, people didn't run around with the Bible in their hands. You know, they didn't have their NIV or ESV or KJV, whichever is your your, your choice. They didn't have that. They didn't have it in their pocket. They didn't, if you wanted to study the scriptures, you had to go to the synagogue. That's where the scriptures were. Um, and so it became a place of study, a place of reading the scriptures, uh, study of the scriptures. And that's what we find also reflected in the gospels and the book of Acts. Um, Particularly uh, in this land, there was our, in the church tradition, the Anglican tradition, we have the lectionary readings, the set readings. That's something that we have adopted from the Jewish community. In the first century, there were regular readings, uh, portions to you, and you worked your way through 
the uh, Torah and the first five books uh, of the Bible, the Pentateuch, and those were fixed. Uh, there were some cycles that were one year, some cycles three years to make your way through all four, uh, five books of the Pentateuch, uh, but those were fixed. They could not be altered. Um, and so when you came, it was already determined what portion, the Parashat Shavua, the, the portion for the week that would be read. And that's what we have Jesus doing here. We have him standing up and reading. Uh, just as was said, you know, you would, the reader would come and they would stand to read. Uh, Jewish scholars tell us that Jesus actually, when the language here that Jesus stands up to read means he stands up to read from the Torah. We don't know. Luke doesn't tell us. He's only interested in the Isaiah passage. He doesn't tell us what passage from the Torah he read. I wish I knew. I have some speculation, but it's pure speculation. Um, but he's, when it says that he stood to read, this is language that says that he, he stood to read from the Torah. One was not obligated to stand to read from the prophets. Um, but then he has options. Once you have the Torah passage, uh, usually the speaker would be given the freedom to choose from the reading of the prophets, the Haftarah. I might add this is the first recorded account we have in history. It's not that it's the first time, but it's the first record we have of a Jewish tradition that begins in this period of reading of the prophets, the Haftarah, the reading of the Torah from the Pentateuch and the reading from the prophets. And the Jewish literature says one may skip through the prophets. In other words, you can pick and choose. You can take a little bit here, a little bit here, bring them together, but you may not skip through the Torah. That is a fixture. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's given the book of Isaiah. We might say, by the way, that that is an honored uh, task. Not anybody is allowed to come up and read. Uh, someone who has great respect, the, commu the community, tells us a bit about what they think of Jesus. Uh, but it also says something about his ability. In my field in New Testament studies, it's quite regular to speak of Jesus as being illiterate. Um, passages like this stand to the contrary of that. Uh, it is not an easy thing to stand and read uh, from the Torah because there, in that time there were no vowels. It's an unpointed text. It's a consonantal text, and you're expected to read it correctly which means you know what you're doing. It gives us insight that Jesus grew up and was taught and trained and knew how to, to do these kinds of things and to read this text. So he takes from the passage of the prophet Isaiah and he begins to read. We read it already this morning. He opened the book. He found the place where it is written and he begins to read from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. There's a couple things about this passage that sometimes do not draw our attention. Uh, he doesn't, uh, I always encourage my students that whenever the New Testament uh, quotes the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures, stop. Open it up and look at it. In other words, look at the, actually open up the Old Testament text and look at it and compare. 
how it's being read in the New Testament and how it is in the Old Testament. Uh, and there oftentimes are differences. Sometimes those differences are because the Old Testament is in Hebrew and the New Testament is in Greek. And when you go through languages, sometimes there's little, uh, little changes. But sometimes there are really profound things going on that we overlook. We don't realize what's taking place. So I tell them it's worth your while to take two minutes and actually look at the scripture there. And not just to look at the verses that are quoted, because in the first century there were no chapters and verses. And there you need to look at what comes before, what comes afterwards, because in rabbinic practice, oftentimes when you will quote a small portion of scripture, that quotation is merely intended to point you to the larger block of text. And I will tell you that more often than not, what was meant, the point of citing that, is to be found in the words not quoted. It's sort of like the other shoe, you know, waiting to drop. It is the portion that is not quoted. It's a very interesting dynamic, but again, it's not something that, it's not how we're trained to do it in seminary, uh, but this is the Jewish way of, of handling the scripture. So, if, we, if you stop and you look at this passage from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, one of the first things you notice is that Jesus stops short. He doesn't continue the whole way. If we look at Isaiah 61, just quickly, uh, we will notice that um, verse 2 reads, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus intentionally eliminates those words. He does it on purpose. Uh, he's beginning to build a sermon. Uh, we sometimes, you know, we need, you know, 20 minute, 30 minute explanation. Oftentimes the sermon is in how they combine the, the passages, how they treat them. And that's the first hint to us that Jesus is conveying a message to the congregation in Nazareth. He doesn't, he eliminates the discussion of vengeance. The next thing that we notice is that the last line of Luke 4.18, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, does not appear in Isaiah 61. Now, if you read commentaries, they'll say, oh, Luke was mistaken. Luke didn't know what he was doing. He was being sloppy. This is just the ignorance of New Testament scholars who do not understand what Jesus is about here. He's handling this passage with great ability like a first century sage. There is a um, Jewish method of interpretation. We call it Gezerah Shavah. Uh, and it is where you take two unrelated passages and you combine them by virtue of the fact that in both of those passages there are uh, rare phrases or combinations of words uh, that function sort of like strings, threads, stringing beads between these two texts. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. This is a, a method of interpretation that was identified closely with 
uh, sage in the generation before Jesus, Hillel the Great. Uh, this is one of his techniques, and Jesus uh, knows it and uses it with great ability. You ever notice how Jesus is speaking in half verses? When he comes into the temple, he says, my house should be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. The first phrase is from Isaiah 56, 7. The last part of the phrase is from Isaiah 7, 11. He takes two completely different passages and sews them to together to make a point. There's actually a message intended in, those, in that combination, but, but we're divorced by 2,000 years of culture, language, and, and unfamiliarity in how this is done. And sometimes we don't pick up on what is being said here. Um, why the things that he's doing are causing such a, uh, an, a disruption, causing a stir. And Jesus here sows into this citation one line from Isaiah 58.6 which is the other passage we read today. And we'll talk about that in a minute. What is the, the thrust of his sermon? But in essence, what he's doing is he wants us to read Isaiah 61 through the lens of Isaiah 58, 6. Okay, everybody with me on this? Okay, sorry to be so professorial, but you, you have to know what he's doing to get his message. And, and a couple of things I want to, uh, not only do I want you to understand what Jesus has to say, not so much what I have to say, but what he has to say, but I also want you to walk away with a greater appreciation of, of Jesus' ability. There's a reason he's invited to come up and read, uh, because it's recognized. He has a respect in the community, at least till this day. Then sparks began. So he, he closes the book gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. Now, today, we stand to preach. In the synagogue, I don't know how, if, how much you've traveled, some of you are traveling here, if anybody's been to Chorazin, uh, the synagogue, third century synagogue Chorazin, you have uh, a seat there in the synagogue, uh, sometimes referred to as the seat of Moses. It's the seat of instruction in the synagogue. So uh, that you can get a lot of the sense of the action going on in the Nazareth synagogue by looking at that uh, layout of that synagogue in Chorazin. Uh, coming up, standing up on the bima, the platform, reading from the scripture, handing it back to the attendant who puts the scripture back and he comes and sits down. Everybody expects the sermon to begin now and it's a very short sermon. It's a good, good model. You know, very short sermon. He says, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now we as Christians sort of struggle with this, this idea of fulfillment. But it doesn't mean that it's been fulfilled and made obsolete. It's actually the idea in Hebrew, mekayam, uh, When remember in uh, Matthew 5, 17, Jesus said, don't think I've come to do away with the law I have not come to do away with it, but to establish it. To, same word here, fulfill. Mekayem means to establish, to give right understanding, to give right example. So Jesus is saying, this passage is pertinent today. It has bearing today. It's I'm here to stand behind it and say, you know, listen up to what God has to say through the scriptures. Um, and 
And now verse 22, this is the one you'll probably struggle with me a little bit, but you'll have to tolerate me. Uh, I do read Greek and Hebrew, and this is uh, the translation here I struggle with, to be quite honest. Um, this translation here, uh, actually, if, if I was to read quite literally the Greek, this is how it reads. And all witnessed against him and were amazed at his words of grace. That's exactly what it states. All witnessed against him and were amazed at his words of grace. They were provoked by his words of grace. The words of grace that proceeded out of his mouth. Again, you can go home, get your translator, if you've got a, uh, one of those transliterated Bibles and things or parallels or whatever, and you can check that out. But that's exactly how it reads in Greek. Um, and that, this is important because there's a discussion, when do people get angry? Why are they upset? And sometimes people will push it down a little bit farther. I believe that they were provoked by exactly what he's done just now, by combining these two texts and interpreting Isaiah 61 through the lens of Isaiah, 60, uh, Isaiah 58. Why? Because in the first century, Isaiah 61 was very often read, that phrase that we read earlier, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God as a type of, the term you would use is dualism, spiritual dualism. That, to put it like this, that there's some that God loves and some that God hates. That there's some God has chose to bless and some that God has chosen to punish. We find this really accentuated at, at Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls. There's sort of an extreme example of it. But to be quite honest, we're all a little bit like that. We like comfortable categories. We like to be able to say, you know, those people are a little bit far from the Lord and we're a little bit closer. And where there's a, there's a tendency in religious communities to sort of draw clear lines between the deserving and the undeserving whom those deserve God's favor and those who are maybe just a bit out and not deserving of God's favor. It's not a Jewish thing. It's not a Pharisaic thing. I think it's a human tendency that we have to sort of, we like those clear categories and uh, we're comfortable with those. And Jesus starts tinkering with that. He starts messing with that here. And that's his message here. He's saying, careful, these clear categories aren't as clear as you think. And so, they're troubled by that. And so what do they say? Is this not Joseph's son? Isn't he a local? Didn't he grow up here? Where is he getting this strange teaching? Where is this coming from? Isn't this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, and again, I'm going to, I'm, I'm, parting company with the English translation, heal. It's not reflexive like heal yourself, it's heal. It's the same Hebraic structure. By the way, I should tell you this is going on in Hebrew. Uh, same Hebraic structure when God tells Abraham, lech lecha, and we, you know, get yourself. And God commands Abraham to get up and go. The Hebrew there is lech lecha. Literally, it's a reflexive. Get yourself going. But it just, the simple translation is go. It's just go. It's not reflexive at all. And this, I think, is what uh, Jesus is communicating here. 
Doubtless you will, um, you will quote to me this proverb, heal. What we heard you do at Capernaum, do also in your own country. And again, this this real sensitivity of, of uh, you know, feeling this discrepancy between this whole issue of, of deserving and undeserving. So Jesus brings a couple of biblical examples. And again, a lot of the New Testament commentaries say, oh, Jesus is anticipating the Gentile mission, the taking of the gospel of the Gentiles. I don't think so. I think Jesus takes two biblical examples to address their presumption that there are some who are deserving and some who are undeserving. And particularly their presumption that they're deserving. This is one of the things about theologies of election. I've yet to come across a congregation who believes in sort of double predestination and election, who believes that the people down the street have been predestined for salvation. Unfortunately, our congregation has not been. You know, it's, it's always, uh, it always sort of is very convenient that we're the ones who are deserving of God's mercy and grace and love. In any event, he uses, I think, two biblical examples to address this prejudice. And he said, um, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his own country. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens, when the heaven was shut up three days and six months, and when there was a great famine over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. In other words, there were, if I can put it like this, there were many widows among the covenant people of Israel. And yet God, in his profound mercy and grace, chose to send Elijah to an undeserving woman outside of the people of God. Totally undeserving. He's saying the weight of God's mercy and love extends beyond your lines of who's deserving and undeserving. This woman had no reason to expect God to give any attention to her. And yet that's who God sent Elijah to. Doesn't mean he doesn't love his people, but it means the weight of God's mercy and love takes away our presumptions as to who God can love, who God can draw to himself. He continues the second example. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Once again, God chooses to reach out and extend his care, his attention to one that we might think doesn't deserve it. He's outside of the household of Israel. He's outside of the covenant people. When they heard this, all the synagogue was filled with wrath. People don't like their categories messed with. They're very comfortable. We're very comfortable. And and assuming that those people out there really are beyond the pale. You know, they've, you know, for whatever, you know, they've got, Tattoos, they've got metal, they've got, you know, whatever, whatever floats your boat, whatever things that, that you think make you outside of God's ability to redeem and restore. And Jesus has a very powerful message for those 
in Nazareth, and they didn't like it. Let me give you one quick analogy of a contemporary of Jesus, or just in the century before Jesus, who had the, ran afoul with his contemporaries over the same issue. We have an individual named Choni the circle drawer, we call him because of a miracle uh, that he did, and he was understood to have a, an ability that when he prayed, God heard and responded immediately. And, at, and during his day, there was a civil war going on. Uh, the last of the sort of Hasmonean, Maccabean dynasty, the two brothers were fighting, and uh, one on the outside had his brother and his uh, followers encircled and sieged in Jerusalem, and Hyrcanus and Aristobulus. Aristobulus was in Jerusalem, and Hyrcanus thought, you know, I'm going to bring Choni come and have him pray against my brother and his followers. And they came and they pushed against it. It's sort of like the Balaam story, if you, familiar, if you remember that, you know, praying against, cursing, and, and it's sort of very similar, although this has a little bit different ending to it. So they pushed Choni to pray, and he says, no, no, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to do it. And then finally they push him to pray against the people in the city, uh, his fellow Jews, but the, again, the other side of the Civil War. And he says, no. And then he turns to the Lord and prays and he says, God, ignore their prayers. For those in the city are your priests. They were, they were of a priestly land. Those in your city are your priests and these out here are your people. So don't hear the prayers of either one. Choni refused to be caught into that kind of division of separating who is deserving of God's love and mercy and who's not. And again, it seems that Jesus, and what was the response? I should finish the story. What was the response when he prayed that prayer? They took him out and stoned him. The, Josephus tells us this is how Choni died. It's a very similar situation to what Jesus encounters here. As we know, this ends. They take him out to stone him. They respond to Jesus the same way Choni's contemporaries respond to him, although Jesus is able to pass by. So Jesus challenges contemporaries, and I would say he challenges us today as well to be careful about our comfortable categories and our definitions of who is deserving, undeserving, whom God loves and who God you know, doesn't have the ability to love. Instead, he tells us it's not our business to make categories. It's not our business to sort of decide for God who he loves and how much he loves. Instead, he calls us to sort of get out of the bleachers because that's what people do. They like to sit up in the bleachers and, and cheer for this side against that side. Uh, and he said, no. Instead, he interprets that passage of Isaiah 61 that neatly is compartmentalized and was used for spiritual dualism. And he inserts into it this one line from Isaiah 58. And that's his sermon. He's saying it's not your business to do definitions. It's your business to roll up your sleeves and to be God's hands and feet to demonstrate his love. Is, not, is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. 
Then you shall call and the Lord will answer and you shall cry and he will say, here I am. Um, again, it's not only, I think it was a powerful and disruptive, sometimes good sermons, good messages are a bit disruptive. They sort of get us out of our comfortable places. Not only was it for the first century, but I, I think it's a continuing word to all of us that we're careful uh, about our presumption, about God's ability to, to love, to redeem, to restore the people around us. All of us have people in our lives. We know people who are not walking with the Lord, maybe are, are in a place that they shouldn't be. Um, it's to encourage us not to lose hope that God hasn't forgotten, that he stands in that place wanting to draw them uh, for us to, to plumb the depths of God's heart uh, and to offer ourselves to be used as vessels of that mercy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your deep love, your mercy, that you've even drawn us to yourself. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the word we've heard today. Lord, forgive us when we limit your ability to redeem, to restore, to draw to yourself those that we might presume are beyond your ability to reach. Lord, we offer ourselves afresh today to be used by you as your instruments of healing, as your instruments of forgiveness, as your instruments of mercy. Use us, Father. Give us, speak to our hearts. Prompt us, show us the ways to reflect your deep love. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page or leaving a review in iTunes. You can offer practical support to Christ Church Jerusalem by clicking the Donate Now button on our Facebook page. Thank you and blessings from the City of the King.